Well, hello there, and welcome to another Brussels to Beijing policy podcast, where we examine how changes in regulation and rules affect commodity markets across Europe and Asia. I'm Sebastian Lewis, Platt's head of content for Greater China, and I'm joined here down the line today by Paul Bartholomew, who's in our Melbourne office and is a senior managing editor for Platt's. Paul, everybody knows about India and China. That story is very well told. But I don't think Southeast Asia gets so much attention, and in particular that ASEAN grouping of 10 countries. You know, it's a very diverse region with everything from Indonesia with 250 million people to Singapore that's a city-state. Now, you've just uh, authored a report on this, Emerging Amongst Giants. Tell us a bit about what's going on in the region and what does this mean for policy and, of course, commodity markets? Hi, Sebastian. Yeah, we've just done a report on the ASEAN region, which incidentally celebrates 50 years in 2017. You know, because we think it's a, a region that many parts of the world uh, actually know very, very little about. But it is a very exciting part of the world that is um, on track to be fourth largest market by around about 2030 and beyond. As you say, it's quite an eclectic range of countries with all kinds of different kinds of governments. But one thing I think it really has on its side, particularly in comparison to, to China, is very, very strong demographics. So in terms of the working population, you know, Indonesia and the Philippines in particular are very strong. You know, their working population will grow by 30%, 70% over the next three decades. So that's a lot of people coming into the workforce who will need somewhere to live. Uh, you know, we need cars to drive and, and fridges and, of course, all that so is going to require uh, a lot of energy. So are you saying that although the focus right now is on China and we're all talking about this China slowdown, what's this mean for commodity demand? What we're missing is that creeping demand for metals and, of course, energy all emerging from Southeast Asia. Absolutely. There's some very, very strong demand numbers. I mean, let me just reel off a few. And these are largely based on Platt's uh, analysis. So, for example, oil demand in the region is going to rise by approximately 1.2 million barrels a day in 2025 compared to where they were a couple of years ago. We've got LNG demand reaching around about 30 million tonnes a year by 2022. That's three times where it is now. So while there's a big push into renewables, coal usage is probably going to grow and we see it sort of accounting for around 26% of the overall energy mix by 2020 and, and growing even higher to around 33% by 2035. Steel consumption, which is an area I look at, quite closely. Uh, it's going to hit about 90 million tonnes a year by 2018-19. So, so ASEAN as a whole, the GDP has been growing around about 5% over the last five years, which is actually a lot higher than places such as Latin America, which have been barely growing at uh, 1%. And over the next five years or so, we expect GDP growth to sit around 4 to 5%. But the demand for power is going to be slightly tracking ahead of that by about Five to six percent. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of investment required. We see uh, ASEAN's electricity demand growing by almost 40 percent by 2025, and its electricity supply rising by around 35 percent. What's driving all that demand for electricity? You know, it's growing manufacturing bases, particularly places like uh, Vietnam. It's more apartments. I've just come back from the Philippines. And Manila has got to the point where there's almost no room left almost to build new apartments. So um, you can just see apartment blocks going up everywhere. Huge shopping centers are going. So there's obviously a lot of housing, a lot of businesses, and a growing economy that needs to be um, supported. 
And in terms of the policy frameworks, it's not something I know a huge amount about. What are we going to see in terms of policy changes to support this need for power to help the region develop? Yeah, so one of the programs they've got underway is what they call the ASEAN Power Grid, which was uh, all about achieving uh, energy supply security, you know, and optimizing local energy sources such as coal, gas, and renewables. This requires a lot of cross-border transmission interconnections. And uh, at the moment, they've got about 16 projects underway. Like a lot of things in ASEAN, there's been a lot of talk, a lot of pretty speeches, but it's actually been very, very slow in the execution. And that's one thing I wonder about ASEAN. I mean, it's one of those kind of regions I've always been interested in, and yet it never really seems to take off in how we imagine. So despite all those kind of headline numbers, without those policies, without that regional integration, are we really going to see the numbers we're predicting, or, or do you think things have changed this time? I think when you look at some of the demographics, there looks like there's going to be enough momentum to drive a lot of this growth. I think one of the issues with ASEAN is that um, there's still quite a lack of mutual trust between the member states. So on the one hand, they talk about collaboration, but on the other hand, many of them have aspirations towards being self-sufficient. And this is a major impediment to developing a multinational energy trading scheme. And you might find there's different kind of market mechanisms. There might be subsidized market or energy market on one side of the border, you know, slightly more free market on the neighboring country. You know, the big effect this is having is to investment, and there's a lot of investment is going to be required to support all this uh, new energy infrastructure over the next 20, 30 years. So, Paul, in terms of investment, what are we looking at? What's the dollars mean? Well, on some estimates, energy investment required to, to power the region, we were looking in the region of around about $90 billion a year, maybe over the next 15, 20 years. We're talking of trillions of dollars. Now, there's no way that many of these countries are going to be able to do it by themselves. So they're going to need to attract foreign direct investment. The problem is FDI has actually been shrinking. It, uh, it shrank 8% year on year in 2015. I mentioned earlier that there's a lack of collaboration between the countries. But investors also want to see transparent markets and policy consistency. Interestingly, the Philippines Energy Minister, who I saw um, speaking recently in Manila, he seemed to be well aware of this. So he, he really talked up um, you know, the Philippines transparent markets, robust regulatory framework and, you know, and government support in terms of getting projects up and running. But if that is the figure, then it's, it's a huge amount of money that's required. So uh, I think individual countries in the region are going to have to work very, very hard to attract uh, that kind of investment because there's not so much coming outside of uh, ASEAN. A lot of it is intra-ASEAN investment, but it'll need to diversify its sources. It needs to reach that kind of uh, investment figure. And I think, you know, all that, and again, that comes back to that policy framework. You know, if we can't get a coordinated framework, I personally have a feeling that uh, ASEAN isn't going to grow as fast as, or we're not going to attract the investment at the rates required. Anyway, very interesting. Thank you very much, Paul. And that's sadly all the time we have for this month with Brussels to Beijing. Please do look at our ASEAN special report. I think there's a link to it on the, uh, the podcast. And uh, we look forward to seeing you next time.